Well, friends, it's wonderful to be back with you. Uh, our vacation to the Carolinas, our yearly pilgrimage was wonderful, and it was just long enough that we were refreshed and renewed, and um, also it was just the right amount of time to come back home and be with you all. So it was a fabulous trip. Um, our last night there, we spent in one of our favorite cities, Charleston, South Carolina, and we've been there a number of times, so it's difficult to find new things to do, new things to enjoy, new experiences to have as a family. So that was my job this year was to find something new. And so I looked online and there was this very historic graveyard called Magnolia Cemetery that was founded in 1850 that had just become open to the public for tours. And so I signed us up for that. It was actually an evening graveyard tour. And so the family got together, went out to Magnolia Cemetery, and um, they gave us flashlights and things like that. It was just fascinating, just a place dripping with natural beauty. Imagine just so many trees with the Spanish moss and beautiful bodies of water, and it just it was so picturesque. And um, I think there are five Civil War generals buried there, thousands of Civil War soldiers, many of the most prestigious Charlestonians of the 19th century were there, all kinds of different burial practices, things like that. And so we're learning all about this. We're going all over the cemetery. And so then our tour guide named uh, John, I believe it was, he stopped us in this one place and he was going to tell us a low country ghost story because there are all these low country ghost stories in Charleston that come from the Gullah and Geechee culture and he was going to tell us this one story in particular that was kind of frightening and it was suited given the context and the circumstances and it was getting darker and there was another family there with us a mom and a dad a boy probably 10 or 11 and an eight-year-old and so we're all standing there and to say that John, our tour guide, took his job seriously would be an understatement. And to say, you know, I don't know if he was a thespian in his earlier life, but he was getting into the role, getting into this particular ghost story. And without repeating it to you, at the end, it included this scream, this very ominous, and I will say very frightening scream that was a little awkward and, and disorienting. And the eight-year-old boy who was there proclaimed to the group, I'm out, okay? <laughs> so he literally starts walking away. His dad is following him. And Cole and Jack overhear him saying, remind me never to come on a graveyard tour again. That's what a lot of people feel like when they get to Revelation chapter 11. <laughs> I'm out. Remind me never to read the book of Revelation again. Um, you know, the last couple weeks, Chris Bennett and Chris Coleman indicated that I kind of threw them under the bus, as it were. <laughs> that I went on vacation leaving them with these difficult passages and revelation. Well, I've got to tell you boys something. I was protecting you. <laughs> None other than D.A. Carson, perhaps the most eminent New Testament scholar in the world today, 
calls Revelation chapter 11 the most difficult chapter in Revelation. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, fellas. <laughs> I don't even know where I am anymore. Okay, here we go. With all that in mind, okay, all those different images, pictures, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we are in a very interesting, um, hotly debated and discussed chapter in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And so this is the angel of the Lord. As Chris Coleman told us last week, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after... The three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. 
Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. So, it's probably obvious by now why this passage is considered by many to be perhaps the most difficult and maybe opaque in terms of understanding in the book of Revelation. But one reason I'm glad that we're doing Revelation is the, um, I think repetition is the key to learning. One of the interpretive keys to the book of Revelation is this literary feature or technique called recapitulation. And Chris Coleman did an excellent job last week of explaining this literary idea of recapitulation. And he compared it to like a photographer or maybe that Cole and Haven were taking pictures of their living room. Same living room, but they were taking pictures from different perspectives in the room. So same room, different vantage point, different pieces of information from each picture, but same room. Or you might use another metaphor or analogy like a beautiful diamond, a beautiful gem. One diamond, one gem, a variety of facets and surfaces that give you a little bit of a different perspective, but it's of the same thing. That's what we get in the book of Revelation. Over and over and over, Revelation talks about the affairs of the church that occur after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus until he comes again in power and glory. What's the fate of the church? How will the church endure during that time? Will the church enduring, endure during that time? What's it going to be like when Jesus comes again and restores all things? We get this over and over in the book of Revelation. And we're going to get it again this morning. But with each of these visions, these pictures of the future, like it, it intensifies. The drama increases the imagery gets even more vivid. That's what we have before us in the book of Revelation, verses 1 through 14. As a reminder, the book of Revelation is part of a particular genre. And by now you should know that genre type. It's called apocalyptic literature, a type of literature that was prevalent in the first century, and it is highly symbolical. There's lots of word pictures and metaphor. And so we shouldn't try to find like a literal expression for each one of these images. These images are symbolic of a greater reality. Now, there are some dear friends kind of in our, our theological world um, maybe that are from what's called maybe a more of a, a dispensational perspective, or if you have ever watched the, or read the Left Behind series that was like, I mean, I think a worldwide bestseller, they are chronicling the events of Revelation from a different perspective. Um, you might call it a more literalistic perspective. So when you talk about the two witnesses in Revelation 11, they're trying to figure out who these two witnesses correspond to, things like that. Well, from our Reformed and Covenantal perspective, these are symbols. These are pictures. These are images of spiritual realities. And 
And Lord willing, we'll see that as the text unfolds before us. Okay, let's look at verses 1 through 3. This is the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking. He's saying to John, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Okay, so... Go back to the very beginning of Revelation. The Apostle John, he's on a penal colony in the Isle of Patmos around 96 AD. And the Lord Jesus Christ is giving John this apocalyptic picture of the future of the church and the end of all things. So John is given a window into heaven, as it were, into these amazing, amazing pictures and images. And so right off the bat, we get a picture or an image of two things. First is the temple. He sees this window and there's a temple there. And you shouldn't think of a literal temple. The good news is there's a precedent for this. Like, as Chris Coleman said last week, the key to Revelation is Scripture itself. And so the Lord Jesus Christ... The Apostle John is, is conveying this image to us using biblical pictures and metaphors. So in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul refers to the Corinthian church as what? He calls them the temple of God. In the New Covenant, read through Jesus Christ, the temple goes from being like a physical building to an actual people in whom the Spirit inhabits. So in the Old Testament, the special presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple and the new covenant with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in new and fresh ways. Now, the people of God all over the world indwelt by the Spirit, we are the temple. We are the people of God. And in this vision, the angel of the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ is told to measure out the temple, the altar, and the people there. So what this does, and so let's take a breath. There's going to be a little more explanation than usual this morning. So it might be a good morning to take some notes, and maybe you can do some reading later. This is God's Word. This is amazing. These things do point to greater realities, and we as God's people should take an interest in this. This isn't just dry seminary lecture. I don't mean to, I feel like I'm scolding you and you haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> Welcome to my house. Um, no, I'm just kidding. That's just, I'm, Stephanie, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I've been out of the pulpit a couple of weeks. I'm reorienting. At any rate, so you have this temple... And so a distinction is made between the temple and this outside court in verse 2. So the angel of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is told to measure the temple of God, the altar of those who worship there, but do not worship the court outside the temple. Most scholars think that what is being said here is that when the Lord Jesus, when he measures out the temple, the altar, those who worship there, that symbolizes the church, the people of God, are spiritually safe and secure. Spiritually safe and secure. 
And a contrast is made between the temple and the court outside. The court outside. What is said to be done regarding this measuring rod outside the temple in the courtyard? What's to be done there? Look at the text. It's not to be measured. Okay? And so you get this theme reinforced that we've heard over and over again in Revelation. During the church age, during the period of time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming, the church, the people of God, are spiritually safe, spiritually secure. Okay? Like, like Nate, um, or I guess it was Chris Coleman, or Chris Bennett, sorry, got a lot of Chris's. Um, the Confession of Faith, Romans 8. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything separate us? No. We are more than conquerors for him who loved us. Okay? So we are spiritually secure. But at the same time, Jesus said in this world, what? You will have peace and security and comfort in your best life now? Is that what Jesus said? No. He said in this world you will have what? You will have trouble and difficulty and challenge and pain. I mean, that's not all we will experience, but we will certainly experience that. So you see that reinforced here. The saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church is measured off. It's safe. It's secure spiritually. But insofar as we are in the world, the church will face difficulty and hardship and, and obstacles and persecution. And that's what he's fleshing out here through this symbolical language. Look at verse 2. Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. It is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city. That's another metaphor for the church, the people of God. And they will trample the holy city. They'll trample the holy city, the people of God, for 42 months. Okay? So what he's saying there is, so Satan is called the prince. He has the, he's the prince of the power of what? This world. And so when it says here, I will grant, or it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city, the world is given permission to persecute and oppress the church and oppose the church. It's only because we're living in this tiny window of time in the last 150 or 200 years that it's somewhat difficult for American Christians to connect with this. I assure you, it's not been like this for Christians over the history of the last 2,000 years. We are living in this golden age in the kind of, I guess, the, the end stage of this Christian culture. We're now in a post-Christian culture. And I think saints in the next years and decades are going to definitely understand more of what this is talking about. So as Christians, we're spiritually safe. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But we are subject to the persecution and opposition of the world. Now look at this. Now this is interesting. So this is said to happen for 42 months. 42 months, that's the same as 1,260 days. Verse 3, I will grant authority... To my two witnesses, now, wait, who are they? And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, who are these two witnesses? Later, they're called two prophets. Long story short, that's the church again. 
That's the witness of the church. And they're said to witness and prophesy for three and a half years, 1260 days, or 42 months. It's exactly half of seven. Seven years pictures completion, fullness. Three and a half years is half of that. It's in a sense an age of evil. Or Paul says we're in the last days, um, this present what does Paul refer our age? What does he refer to our age with what words? He calls it this present evil age. We are in the last days. We are in the three and a half years. The three and a half years started the moment Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended. The church is going to bear witness during this time, during the church age, but will be opposed and persecuted the entire time. But these two witnesses, they're going to prophesy. They're going to preach Christ. Why two witnesses? You know, within the Left Behind series, they try to think through who are these two witnesses. Maybe they're Moses, maybe they're Elijah. But this is symbolical. These are images. Like fire is not coming out of the mouths of these two witnesses. We're going to see that fire represents the judgment of God the preaching of his word, the power of the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the witness of the church. Perhaps it's two witnesses because how many witnesses were you to get to establish the legal binding nature of testimony? How many witnesses in Matthew 18 in the Old Testament? By the establishment of how many witnesses? Two witnesses. It could also be indicative of the saints of the Old and New Covenant, maybe Jew and Gentile, legal power, um, abiding testimony of two witnesses. Look at verse 4. Now they're called olive trees. Okay, why are they called olive trees here? Well, there was this, you know, um, the, they're called lampstands, okay? And these lampstands were fed by this olive oil. And where were the lampstands in the Old Testament? They were in the temple. They gave off light. What were the lampstands referring to in Revelation 1? The church. So it symbolizes the prophetic witness of the church. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. They give off their light to the world that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Look, now it seems like so far that the church is overmatched that the church doesn't stand a chance. But look here in verse 5. Look at the, the power, the capacity of these two witnesses. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Again, this is not a literalistic, you know, fire pouring out of their mouth. It's talking about the power of God, the judgment of God on those who reject the gospel. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And that just means it's synonymous with judgment. And these two witnesses, these two prophets, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. That's hearkening back to the judgment of Elijah in the Old Testament. Okay? It says that they have the power to make no rain fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters 
to turn them into blood vis-a-vis -vis Moses in the Old Testament and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So that's causing this friction here between the witness of the church and the world. The church is preaching Christ and the world doesn't want to hear it. The world wants to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The world wants to oppose the message of the church, but the message of the church is convicting and powerful. And so there's this enduring conflict. Verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, this is going to be indicative that, that before the end comes, there's going to be this special intensity and the vision comes back to that at the end with calling this time maybe three and a half days instead of three and a half years. This just, there's this, this intensity that marks the end before Christ comes. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, that's indicative of Satan and the demonic world and the, and the world in general, the unbelieving world, rises from the bottomless pit that will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. I thought he was crucified outside of Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem never lived up to God's purposes for it. So now it's symbolic of being a part of the world as well. And so at some point, it's going to seem like the church is totally defeated totally done away with, that um, it's been exposed as just being a fanciful superstition at some point, and the world's going to delight in this. Look at verses 9 through 13. And so, verse, verses 7 and 8 is focusing on this kind of like ratcheted up short period of intensity that's um, fleshed out in verses 9 through um, 14, verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And so essentially the world is saying he's going to preclude, the world's going to preclude the witness of the church from having an honorable burial, if you will. What do you think that's indicative of? Like humiliating the church, humiliating Christians, humiliating Christ Jesus, you know, depriving someone of an honorable burial is equates with humiliation and scorn. Verse 10, look at how the world responds when it seems like the gospel has been exposed to be a fraud. And those who dwell on the earth, they will rejoice over them, meaning over the demise of the church, and make merry and exchange presents. It's like the opposite of Christmas, if you will. And make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And that's why the church of the Old Covenant, what did they do to prophet after prophet? As the prophets came and preached repentance and preached judgment and encourage renewal, what did the people of God, or really you would say more of the, um, the visible church as you were, as it were, what did they do to the prophets? They murdered them, they killed them, 
They persecuted them because they did not want to hear the truth. That's what's happening here. Those are the themes that are being recapitulated. There is great celebration at the demise of the church because the church has told the world what the world does not want to hear. The um, infamous German philosopher Nietzsche, what did he write about God at one point that obviously was very famous? He said about God, God is what? God is dead, and he was speaking metaphorically, not literally, but he was speaking of what he perceived to be um, the declining influence and engagement and impact of the church, and that humanity was going to have to find another way to live and find meaning because people realized God didn't exist, God was dead. That was a premature declaration by Nietzsche's part. This is going to be a premature celebration on the part of the world. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, again, that is like, you know, half of seven in terms of a week. It's this very brief, intense period of persecution and opposition. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And so this is like now speaking of the second coming. And so like we've done before, we're coming full circle. Full circle. During the church age, this very present evil age, the gospel's being preached, the church is being opposed, the church appears to have lost, but at the end, Christ is going to raise up his church. This is the resurrection of the dead. But after the three and a half days, verse 11, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. When Jesus comes again in power and glory, it's going to be the most awesome sight in the history of the universe. And I use that in its technical sense. It is, it is going to be awe-inspiring for everyone. Believer and unbeliever alike, when the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes again in power and glory, look at the response. They stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them when they realized they had rejected the true Christ. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And so now you have the saints that are being glorified and going to glory. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. You know, they're seeing the church being taken up. And at that hour, again, this is highly symbolical language. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, which is synonymous with judgment. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed. That's, that's symbolic of the fullness of judgment. It says the rest were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven, not in the sense of repentance, I don't think. God is glory, glorified when evil is dealt with and when judgment comes on those who have rejected him. Verse 14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come, which is synonymous with the final judgment. Go to panel five and we will conclude this. I know this is overwhelming. I know that this is... 
I would say this, this is frightening, this is sobering, and it should be. There's really nothing more sobering, nothing more significant, nothing more awe-inspiring than what this passage is referring to. Um, you know, Jesus tells us, you know, the Bible tells us, I mean, he's going to come like a thief in the night. People are going to be living life as if everything's normal, um, as if Christianity has been disproven, as if it's irrelevant, like life is just going to go on eternally like it has before, and they are going to be shocked and horrified at the wrath of the Lamb. The Bible does. It uses a variety of motivations to draw us into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see that there's beauty and grace and wonder and joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ that's alluring, that's drawing, that's motivating to trust him. But there's also a holy fear that's inescapable. And we can live in denial and we can suppress the truth and we can put our heads in the sand or we can deal with the reality that's coming. In the Bible, this was written to give people insight into what befalls those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what awaits those who do. It's both. So here we go. Panel five, the end has come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And so this, you know, the seventh is fullness. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so Right now, there's a distinction between the church and the world. One day, no more distinction. All distinctions are gone. The church and the world are one and the same. The new heavens and the new earth, it's all the kingdom of God. The consummation of the reign of Christ has finally come. Look at verse 16. And the 24 elders, again, that represents the church again, old and new, who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces, and they worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, it's no longer saying, and who is to come. Because that's there. He is now eternally reigning. Who is and who was, for you have taken your great power, and have begun to reign, meaning in fullness. The nations raged, but they were impotent against you. Your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. at the great white throne judgment of the Lamb. The Lord Jesus Christ will distinguish between the sheep and the goats, and those who love him will be told to enter in 
to their blessedness and reward and those who have opposed him, those who do not trust him, those who reject him will face his wrath and judgment in ways we cannot even begin to fathom. And so I would ask you today, where are you as it stands with the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is more real and this is more true than anything else in reality. And I can remember in college, it wasn't just the love of God, it was the very real holiness and judgment of God that sweetly drew me in. And it was sobering, and I struggled, but I realized the cover and the protection and the safety in that temple under the covering presence of the wings of the Almighty. And even though we, we have a wonderful church, I don't want to presume that everyone here really knows Jesus Christ, really has given all of their life and all of their heart to him. And I would encourage you, if you haven't done so, to consider the meaning of the book of Revelation. Consider the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he provides for you. The cover, the safety, and the protection. Look at this, the ending of this chapter. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of Revelation that's described even more fully in Revelation 21. Where Revelation 21, in, in like unprecedented ways, describes the new heavens and the new earth. But here's how the vision puts it here. God's temple in heaven was opened. And the Ark of His Covenant was seen within His temple. What was the Ark of the Covenant? What hovered over the Ark of the Covenant? The presence of God, the presence of God in its unmediated fullness is in the temple. The fullness of the presence of God is in the midst of His church and you could see flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of th Thunder and as Robbie mentioned in his prayer, the transcendence of God and the, and the nearness, the eminence, the presence of God, the presentness of God, it's all there. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and heavenly hail. I'll end with this. So Jonathan and Jill played this gorgeous piece by Aaron Copeland called The Promise of Living during the communion meditation last week. And if you didn't connect that or, or hear that, I encourage you to listen to it again. It was so beautiful, so gorgeous. Copeland's one of the finest composers America has ever produced. And I just, um, I wanted to listen to it more. So I asked Robbie on Sunday morning, because it, it was originally penned to lyrics. I said, Robbie, can you find for me what the Smiths did in just instrumental form? And he looked and he looked and he looked and he found it. Um, and I listened to it all week. It is so beautiful. And, and I couldn't describe, like, wh why is this so beautiful and so wonderful? And so then you read about it and it's Copeland intended to kind of convey, like, the hopeful optimism and joy that was part of the 1950s and the post-war effort and, like, the hope of America. And, but 
this particular instrumental, it, it was put to this like, um, it was set to like this, these old grainy films, eight millimeter, 16 millimeter. It looked exactly like what my, fa- my grandfather had when he took um, videos of the family all the way back in the 60s and 70s. Maybe you've seen those grainy um, film images and in this, this picture to this Copeland piece, it was like families at, at amusement parks and family reunions and, and parents and children and hope and optimism and joy. That's what this piece is trying to convey. In one sense, Copeland nailed it. In another sense, he didn't realize he was doing what he was doing. That piece should be set to this. The future God has for his people. The hope, the optimism, the fullness, and the joy. Everything that that peace pictures is not fulfilled in this world. You remember how C.S. Lewis referred to this world as the shadow lands? Just a shadow of the greater reality that the Lord has in store for his people. That's what awaits the church of the living God. And just like that, like as I was watching this thing, I was reminded of my grandfather's videos. And at one time he was young and in the fullness of life, videoing his family. He's now been gone for 40 years. He took these film images 75 years ago, many of them. And just like that, it's over. Friends, persevere. God is going to win. And he has something for his church we can't begin to fathom. Amen and amen. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for these images as sobering and as gripping as they may be. Thank you for the incredible balance of your word. Father, we thank you. We do. We thank you. We thank you for for the bad news. We thank you for the sobering news, the awesome news, the overwhelming news, that the wrath of the Lamb is coming. Father, may that news drive us to the wonderful news, the best news, the greatest news, what the Bible refers to as the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where the Lord Jesus Christ takes his measuring rod and measures the temple of his people, where there is life and safety, and protection forever and ever. Heavenly Father, help us to find refuge and safety in this one. Help us to understand that that these shadow lands, they're not the real lands, that glory land is coming where we will experience life eternal with the Lamb of God. In his matchless name we pray, amen and amen.